0: Welcome to this Cambridge Bright Club Highlights podcast from Bright Club Regeneration with me, Ginny Smith. Coming up, fish penises, orgasmic pepper mills, and what's it really like to be an engineer at Cambridge? Now, before the show, I caught up with Helen Scales to ask her what brought her to Bright Club.
1: I'm all about the oceans. Um, I am very excited by marine biology and all things fishy. Um, PhD was here in Cambridge um, several years ago, and I studied beautiful big coral reef fish that live in the middle of the South China Sea. And I spent a lot of time overseas. These days, I do all sorts of things. Um, I write books, I do radio, and try and talk as much as I can about things that live in the sea. So yeah.
0: So what is it about fish, things that live in the sea, that excites you?
1: Well. I guess it all comes back to the time when I learned to scuba dive. I was, I was at school, I was in, doing my A-levels and I decided that I wanted to learn to dive. And I did my first open water dive in England, in a lake, in fact, it wasn't even in the ocean. Um, and it was freezing cold, it was March, it was about this time of year actually, the water was four degrees. Oh it was so cold. Um, you know, and I was just about to give up on the whole thing, it was absolutely ridiculous. But then I saw this one little fish swimming off into the distance and I suddenly realized how wonderful that was just to be in its its three-dimensional world and to be able to kind of be a fish for a bit so that's really kind of where it came from and then I went off and dived in warmer more colourful (laughs) waters um, and got totally addicted to the underwater world so at that point I just knew well you know I wanted to study this and uh, learn more about what's going on and um, you know all the amazing diversity of stuff that lives in the ocean and I guess for me it's about it's because it's so out of sight and you know it's not in our lives daily the oceans are kind of outside and out of mind and I love kind of unfolding that and seeing it myself and also trying to get other people to kind of Get inspired by the things that live there, and weird things that go on under the waves.
0: Do you have a favorite marine animal?
1: Well, um, I probably have to say seahorses. Um, partly because I wrote a book about seahorses, and I proudly proclaimed that they are my favorite species. And they are. <laughs> they really are. They're wonderful things. I mean, they're very, they're very strange-looking, very mystical creatures. And I always wanted to see one for years and years. It was like the one species I just. You know, really, really wanted to see, and I never did. They're really hard to find. They're so well camouflaged, um, you know, into their environment, and they change colours and so on. And, and they look just like fairy tales, really. They don't really seem to be real, and they have these very strange lives. The males get pregnant. They often form long bonds, partnerships, males and females, for years and years, and they dance, courtship dances, with each other every morning. So you know, they're just enchanting for me, and that's why I wrote the book. So yes, I think it has to be, has to be see-
0: So what was your research on when you were a PhD student? So
1: my my PhD was about another fish, not seahorses. I studied a a fish called um, humphead wrasse, or a Napoleon wrasse is another name for it. And they grow really, really big. These are, the males grow like six foot long and they're chunky and they're really big animals. And they also have really interesting lives, Um, uh, you know, a bit like seahorses. They have um, very complicated sex lives. So part of what my PhD was was... Um, just like actually going to the place where they have sex and, um, <laughs> and studying, they form these big aggregations, normally they're very solitary, so you would see maybe one on its own, but when they once a month when the moon is full they all come to the same spot on a reef and um, one male will, will jealously defend his territory and the females come and he will mate with each of them in turn you know sadly these fish are actually quite endangered because they're a delicacy in china people pay huge amounts of money to eat them especially their lips it's really weird their lips are a delicacy um so you know I, I partly i wrote a paper that showed how fisheries are strip mining the oceans of these fish they're literally just sort of moving around and catching what they can and moving on so that is that that is um you know a real shame and it's just i guess a picture of what the oceans are like at the moment we've got so much fish being taken out and Um, you know, more people to feed and and these are the problems that we're facing at the moment.
0: So what kind of things can we do to try and prevent overfishing it's a
1: really good question I mean one of the key kind of tools is a marine protected area and that's something that people are pushing to have more of globally um, you know the idea of setting aside parts of the ocean where we don't fish we don't do other damaging things and that you know lets habitats recover it lets species grow bigger and so on and so that's great but then you know we're only we've only got about two percent of the oceans protected at the moment and that that's nothing so you've got to think beyond that too and so that's you know it's all things like how do we Manage fisheries to make them less damaging. Things like bycatch when you catch things that you actually end up eating and throwing them back. We have to tackle those sorts of problems, damaging fishing techniques, um, trawls, things like that. So it's the whole picture of how it's what we take out of the oceans and it's what we put in as well. Like trying to figure out pollution and um, you know, stop using the oceans as a junkyard, which you know, it's kind of crazy. I find it really weird to think that. You know, we throw so much crap into the sea and we take our food from that same place, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me. So, you know, I think it's, it's our attitudes towards this place, like, you know, like I said, it's, it's out of sight and out of mind. So for most people, they don't think about where fish comes from or what impacts it might have. And we really need, really need to find ways of changing that.
0: Big topic, but (laughs) But I guess all we can do is is raise awareness and the more people who know about the problems.
1: Yeah, I think that's got to be the starting point. You've got to, I think, until people know about and maybe care a bit about the things that live in the sea, you know, then we really haven't got much hope. So that's partly why I do what I do, is um, why I sort of move from the pure research to more talking about it so that we can hopefully raise awareness and... um, you know, get people thinking and caring and laughing about the things that live in the sea because they're just so, you know, I want to share that sort of passion I have for how great I think it all is.
0: And now here's Helen, sharing her love of the underwater world.
1: Hello, 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 hello. Um, hello, yes, my name is Helen Scales um, and I am a marine biologist. Um, and before anyone asks, yes, that is my real name, Dr. Scales. It's brilliant, isn't it? Fish, get it? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I should point out that marine biology is the best job in the world. It is the best job in the world. Um, I, I get to do things like this year I'm, I'm getting paid to go to Fiji to go scuba diving. I know. Get jealous. I know. It's brilliant. Um, but next week I'm going to Devon. Um, but that's still really cool. That's still really cool. I'm taking 20 Cambridge undergraduates um to play on the seaside it's going to be great we're going to go poking around in rock pools um, it's, it's fantastic i love it um and uh um you know and i do wonder about the kind of places that we go to for these things so we're going to like a marine research station you know it's been there for a long time and i wonder about the animals that live on a beach next to a marine research station and i just wonder how fed up they get of us um because you know cuz we're there, scientists are there every day watching them. Crabs, limpets, we're just looking and we're poking and we're putting bits of chalk on them going, yes, that one, we saw it yesterday. Well, you know, and I just think they must be getting really fed up with us. And I just think one day, maybe they're just going to flip. All these animals are going to flip. And they're going to do something just to kind of just to sort of shock us, scientists, just to kind of make us think. Because we think we know what's going on. You know, we've we've done so many studies, and we figured, OK, limpets, they they live on the shore in these places, um, and uh, and it's all about waves and tides and and, and exposure. And We we understand the ecology of the the shore. But now I think one day we're going to go, and and all the limpets are going to be hiding under one rock over here. And they're going to be giggling. I do, I think that's what we're going to find. Or they're going to have learned to, 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 to arrange themselves across the rocks and spell out the words,
2: We're watching you too.
1: I do, I think this is going to happen. It's going to be fantastic. I can't wait to write the paper. Now, I love, I love what I do. I love the oceans. I love marine biology. But there are some things that really annoy me about, about the sea. and about There are a lot of lies told about the oceans, and a lot of people get the wrong idea. Like, like for example, when they, people find out that I'm a marine biologist, most people say, oh, does that mean you get to play with dolphins? <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, I don't. I've, I've never played with a dolphin. And, and dolphins, you people think they're lovely and clever. They're not, they're really not. If dolphins were that clever, they wouldn't be duped by a bucket of fish. The ones that are kept in aquariums. They wouldn't be duped into doing stupid things like jumping through hoops or doing backflips or laughing. They're not really laughing. They're not. If, if dolphins were actually clever, what they would do is they would demand fish in return for not doing unspeakably rude things to each other's blowholes <laughs> in front of the kids.
3: <laughs> Mummy. What's the dolphin doing?
1: Don't worry, darling. It's just fucking the other dolphin in the head. It's fine. They do it in the wild. It's perfectly natural. They're very inquisitive animals. Yes, but they don't have hands, so they use their penises. It's fine. Don't worry at all. So no, dolphins are filthy. I'm sorry. It's true. Um, I no, I get very angry um, about the sort of me- the media portrayal of, of things that live in the sea. So you know. Things like the movie Jaws. Don't get me started about the movie Jaws. Oh my God, one film that's just ruined the reputation of so many beautiful, wonderful animals. Sharks, they're fantastic. We've got this irrational fear of sharks and and, and shark attacks. It really is irrational. I mean, I'm not saying that if you were so unlucky to get attacked by a shark that that's not bad. It's obviously awful. You know, and I I, I feel it's it's a terrible thing, but, but the chances are so slim. It really are. The the statistics are are kind of fascinating. I find myself kind of poring over them and thinking, you know, we really have got this all wrong. Sharks aren't that dangerous. There's obvious things, you know, like lightning and cars. They're far more scary and dangerous than sharks. But then you dig a bit deeper into the statistics, and there are lots of kind of normal things that are much, much more dangerous than sharks, Like, um, uh, like vending machines. Vending machines are much more likely to kill you, apparently, than a shark. Like by about 200 times. So seriously, and as much. I mean, how often do you see a shark day to day? Not very often. Vending machines—they're everywhere. <laughs> Watch out for vending machines. Seriously. The other thing. The next one I saw on a list of you know comparative statistics with shark shark attacks. Um, air fresheners. Air fresheners. Seriously, you're you're a lot more likely to injure yourself with an air freshener. Than you are for a shark to injure you, and I I, I, just, I don't know quite. Is it the ones that are shaped like a tree, and you put them in your car? I, paper cuts? I don't know what that is. Or or maybe someone's reading a spray can of air freshener, and they spray it in their face, and in which case, you know, bring on the sharks. Frankly, that's just ridiculous. Um, and there's a final one that just really blew my mind. That that you know is more dangerous than a shark, and that's toilets. Toilets are you're more likely to injure yourself on a toilet than, than you are to get injured by a shark. And I thought, wow, how is that possible? How can you hurt yourself on the toilet? Do you get your, something trapped in the lid? What, what is it about a loo that's dangerous? Then I thought, well, actually, no, wait a minute. because I've spent a lot of time yeah, being a marine biologist, haha, in Malaysia, um, diving in wonderful places. And, um, and the toilets there aren't like our toilets. They're the ones that are just a hole in the ground with a, a foot plate either side and you know, you sort of crouch down. Um, Normally, that's what you get, but then occasionally you find a normal Western sitting-up type toilet. Um, But they have to come with instructions because people don't really know how to use them. And in fact, I have genuinely seen on the side of a toilet a picture of someone standing on a Western toilet on the rim and falling in and there's a red cross through it saying, don't do this, it's dangerous, don't stand on this toilet. And I think maybe that's it, maybe that is why toilets are more dangerous than sharks, because people are standing when they should be sitting. I don't know, I think it could be that. But there are other movies that tell lies about things that live in the sea. Finding Nemo, Finding Nemo. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Um, actually, if you haven't seen it, I should explain. It's about a little fish called Nemo who gets lost. And, and, um, and he lives in an anemone. It's a terrible word, anemone. Like little ones, if you go to the beach here, you'll find it in the rock pool, but they're bigger. And the fish live in these anemones in sort of families. And, and right near the beginning of the film, um, Nemo's mum disappears. It's very sad. And, um, uh, and I think what the filmmakers really missed a trick here because they could have, like, got some really good marine biology in there. They could have really explained some interesting stuff to the kids about what would have really happened next. Because, um, you know, what would have really happened next if when Nemo's mum disappeared is Nemo's dad would have had a spontaneous sex change and he would have turned into Nemo's mum. And... <laughs> It would. Seriously, it's, it's true. And, and he would have started, have, she, sorry, would have started having sex with the next biggest male in the anemone straight away. Not so much luck for Nemo, though. No. He doesn't stay at home. No, he has to find another anemone. He doesn't stay. So he would have drifted off and, um, and found somewhere else to live. And then he would have waited for 10 or even 20 years to have a shag. You know, it, it takes that long for an anemone, for a clownfish. And I just think even for fish, that's a very long time to wait to have a shag. It's pretty... So anyway, so I think films should have more real science when it comes to the oceans. And I think that's, you know, that's where we should be going. But, you know, I, I, I love the oceans. I love that one of the things I particularly love is, is the things we don't know. There's so many questions about the oceans, that we still, there's so many mysteries, and I find that just brilliant and fascinating. Like, you know, why is it um, that when people go to the beach, they get this this unbeatable urge to dig an enormous hole? We, We still don't know why that is, we just don't know. And why is it that when when people go on holiday to, to somewhere lovely, like um, a fat American, say, lots of fat Americans going to the Caribbean and they go fishing for fun, that's fine. But why, why do they then insist on having a photograph taken of them with the fish? And in particular, why do these fat American men do this while wearing a tiny pair of ball-munching speedos. Why do they do it? It's like, seriously, dude, no fish is big enough to make up for those. No, no, it's terrible. So, you know, there's lots of mysteries in the ocean. I think that's wonderful. And and there's also so much we're still discovering. New things are being, uh, being found in the sea. New, wonderful, brilliant things. You know, and sometimes, but I do sometimes think maybe... Maybe we've seen it all, perhaps some of the crazy shit that we're finding in the sea, you just think, well, that, it, we can't go any further, that's it, we, we've done it. Nothing more can surprise us about the seas. So, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, um, you may have heard the story, it, it actually made some of the news headlines, not headlines, you know, science headlines. Um, <laughs> and it was about a, a, a flatworm that lives in the sea that has a disposable penis. It's fantastic. So it has sex its knob falls off, and it grows a new one. It's genius, it really is. And there's another creature, there's a type of shark, a sort of relative of a shark that lives in the deep ocean. And he has two penises, yes. And he has one in the kind of traditional penis area, you know, sort of groinal. Fish don't have legs, so it's, you know, (laughs) it's, but you know, that if you had to put a dick on a fish, you'd know where to put it roughly, right? You get it about right. So it has one of those in a sort of, you know, traditional bit and it has another one on its head. <laughs> I know. It's it's a head fuck, it really is. And then the best thing the best thing about that that is we just don't know why. We really don't. You've been fabulous. I've been Helen Scales. Thank you very much.
0: So moving on from fish penises to the more weighty world of peer review, Viv Patel explains an editor's perspective on getting a scientific paper ready for publishing.
3: Thank you. Um, Hello, I'm Viv, or if you're using the predictive text on your phone, Bob. Uh, but that's fine. I'm used to identity issues. Um, if any of you think that's to do with my ethnicity, you're racist. Uh, no, um, my identity issues stem from my undergraduate degree, uh, which was biochemistry, which in my university meant spending half your time in chemistry and half your time in biology. Um, and I thought that was going to be great. Two departments, twice the fun, twice the friends. Bollocks. <laughs> it just means twice the rejection. The chemists don't like you because you touch stuff that smells and is alive. And the biologists don't like you because you insist on using all the real names for all the reagents in the lab. (laughs) Because you can balance equations and other witchcraft like that. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't expecting you to find it that funny. (laughs) I... uh, I survived, though. Uh, I, I did, my, did my degree. I even stayed on to do a PhD. But seeing as we're talking about regeneration, apparently, tonight, uh, I, uh, and because Mark stole all the Doctor Who jokes, um, I, <laughs> uh, I thought I'd talk about the way that I regenerated my career at the end of my PhD. I decided research wasn't for me, and so I went to work in scientific publishing. Um, I worked in scientific publishing for, for three years. I don't, I don't work in publishing anymore. Um, I work in international development. I would tell you what that means, not really sure, Um, but I also get to go somewhere really hot and sunny next week, so it's fine. (laughs) Um, But I worked in publishing for three years, um, and uh, it's really interesting, the reaction that you get. So you go out to scientific conferences quite a lot, because if you're publishing research it's kind of a good idea to know what people are researching, so you still go to conferences and you meet people, and you tell them that you're you're an editor, you work for some scientific journals, and they kind of look at you and go, oh. Re- really? You don't? You don't work in research anymore? Oh, oh! Fuck off! I don't need your pity. I didn't fail at academia. I escaped. I now know the meaning of the term weekend. I can go on holiday without looks of disappointment and disgust from my colleagues. I can have a day off without a sense of Shame that I'm somehow letting down the entire scientific institution. It's great. I love it. But the thing I've realized in in three years of working in publishing is that if you're an editor, if you work for a journal, you actually learn a lot of skills that could come in handy if you decided to have another complete career change. Um, So for those of you who might not be so familiar, the way that uh, the, the publishing process works is people who work in labs do research, they interpret their results, they write up the results, and then they send a manuscript to a journal um, in the hope that it'll be published and that's how people find out about what other people have been researching on. I mean that's, that's a simplified version. What often happens is that some poor unsuspecting first year PhD student will have done all the work, um, spending every weekend and bank holiday in the lab for a year because her narcissistic knob of a postdoc thinks it'd be a really good learning experience for her, um, then, then takes the data, writes it up as a paper and publishes it without telling her. Um, but um, it's fine. Apparently you should be just grateful that you were involved with the project in the first place. It's okay. I'm dealing with it with my therapist. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, but no, so the, <coughs> the papers come in. The, the, you get submitted to the journal. And that's when you realise you have to do a job as a bit of an interpreter. And I'm not talking about language here, because generally the words are in English. It's just difficult to understand what they're saying sometimes. And I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you some, some genuine examples that have come in on, uh, on manuscripts. Okay. Having obtained these negative results, we put them in our behind and decided to change direction. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I just, so, so, sounds kind of painful. Um, okay. If the reaction time was less than three days, for example, two days... (laughs) um, Good good maths. um, It was also observed that the ability of the model mouse to exercise had decreased, and it was confirmed dead. (laughs) I mean, that's that's a fair point. I find it difficult enough to do exercise while I'm alive. Sometimes they just get a little bit silly, A general guideline when handling cells by ultrasound is to follow the same recommendations as James Bond. A cell prefers to be shaken, not stirred. (laughs) Or, my my personal favourite... Embrace yourselves for this one. Water. The headline act in the theatre of life. (laughs) Forget failed academic, there's a failed actor in there somewhere. And sometimes, Sometimes you read papers, and you just, it just really, really makes you understand how the mind of an academic is a very, very special place. <clears throat> the enzyme has a channel connecting the active site to the bulk, and it is filled with water, looking like a little ocean ready to pour its contents. The previous study finds no water, while we do. This reminds me of the story of two fishermen who went to the lake to catch fish. <laughs> One came out with a fish, the other didn't. So once you've finished interpreting what it is that the author might be saying, you do what has been talked about already, and that is peer review. So you send the paper out to other experts in the field. They send back their comments and tell you, recommend whether it should be published or not. Um, This is a point at which you realise that your job as an editor also involves conflict management. Because it's amazing how quickly some of the brightest scientific minds in the world can revert to being five-year-olds if they read something they don't like. For example, there is no such thing as a reaction in this paper. Good grief, I could not believe my eyes. They may as well believe in unicorns, dragons and dementors. Is there anything (laughs) that can be done? Do you, do you want me to put them on the naughty step for you? Would that help? I don't, I don't know. Sometimes you move away from being a primary school teacher and you have to be an international diplomat. <clears throat> there is a need to review for proper punctuation and use of plurals in this paper. But this is not uncommon when the authors are fluent in a language other than English. For example, American. <laughs> it's, it's awkward. Um, <clears throat> Sometimes they um, damn you with faint praise. I found the supplementary information section much more interesting than the main manuscript. (laughs) And sometimes they just don't give a fuck. Unfortunately, I find this manuscript a a perfect waste of good and expensive equipment. This is an example of the worst kind of research I have seen in a very long time. Ouch! So, once you've finished... Playing, you know, either primary school teacher or international diplomat, um, you send paper out to the back to the authors. They make their changes. They send it back, and you can actually publish it. That's that's great, and that's fine. Um, But then you encounter other problems, and one of the other jobs that you often find yourself doing as an editor, is, um, could come in really handy if you're working for, I don't know, the Censorship Board or the Advertising Standards Agency. <clears throat> this is because we make the stupid mistake of asking authors to suggest images for the covers of the journals that we work on. Now, sometimes you get kind of the expected response, which is, um, you know, For example, a paper on the spectroscopic analysis of some oil from a nut from South America. And you will literally get a picture of a spectrometer next to a jug of oil, (laughs) next to a map of South America. (laughs) And for artistic value, they've put some trees on the map of South (laughs) America. (laughs) That's great. But actually, the problems arise when they start trying to be a bit creative. Um, I mean, the email you'd never want to write is... Dear Professor Smith, whilst we really do want to highlight your work on the cover of our journal, we feel that a f- photograph of a human placenta is probably not the best representation. <laughs> genuine, honest, really. It was genuine. It's a genuine suggestion. they photographed real human placenta puddle of blood. They thought this would be good on the cover of a journal. Uh, mm, okay. <clears throat> but actually... That's the easy part, is when you tell people that you are going to publish their paper. The problem comes with the other half of people, where you have to write to them and say you're not going to publish their paper. Because if there's one thing that academics don't like more than teaching... <laughs> it's being told that they're wrong. They don't like it. And that's because, and we're all guilty of it, any of us in here, who ever works in an academic environment, <coughs> we just get used to being told that we're very, very clever. And we don't like it when people tell us that we might not be as clever as we think we are. You know, you do science subjects at school, you must be so clever. You're doing a chemistry A level, you must be so clever. Wow, you're doing biochemistry at university, you must be really clever. You have a PhD, you must be so clever. And, you know, you may be surprised to learn this, but that gives academics an overinflated sense of their own importance. (laughs) I know, I know, it was a shock to me too. And that's where I realized that being an editor, I reckon I'd make a pretty good bailiff. <laughs> and the reason for this is if you're a bailiff, if you're knocking down people's doors and taking their possessions, you really can't give a shit what people think about you. And you kind of get that kind of tough skin when you're working, um, working as an editor, and you have to reject a paper. And this is a genuine response from some authors, not from a journal that I've ever worked on, but just uh, it's from another journal that got published somewhere. Quickly retracted, but I managed to get hold of it before they pulled it off the internet. It is fairly clear that you and your anonymous reviewers are less interested in the details of scientific procedure than when working out your personality problems and sexual frustrations by seeking some kind of demented glee in the sadistic and arbitrary exercise of tyrannical power over hapless authors like ourselves who happen to fall into your clutches. (laughs) We do understand that, In view of the misanthropic psychopaths you have on your editorial board, you need to keep sending them papers for, if they were not receiving manuscripts, they would probably be out mugging little old ladies or clubbing baby seals to death. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm considering a career change to being a traffic warden. (laughs) Thanks very much. You've been great.
0: Next up, Jo Stevenson bringing her own brand of musical comedy to Cambridge.
2: Hello, hello, Um, my name's um, Jo. Um, I have to admit I'm feeling a little bit intimidated. I've got a horrible feeling that I'm the least intelligent person in this room. Um, So I've deliberately worn my glasses um, in a desperate attempt um, to make me seem uh, more intelligent. Um, I don't know whether that's working or not. Um, Thank you. Um, So um, who have we got in tonight? We've got, got obviously, we've got lots of geeks and uh, boffins. Um, Have we got any physicists here this evening? Good. (laughs) Um, Do we have, uh, okay, uh, there's only one physicist. Uh, Do we actually, do we have any quantum physicists here? Okay. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask is because my very first song is about, um, it's actually about the time I dated I'm um, a physicist, uh, a quantum physicist, um, to be precise, because they, they like you to be precise. <laughs> um, uh, it, di- it didn't turn out very well. Do, ba-da-do, ba-da-do. I fell for him like an apple from a tree. Apparently that's just gravity, at least that's what he said when he took me to bed. I must admit it went over my head, for I'm in love with a quantum physicist. It felt electric, first time we kissed, I said, do you love me? He said, probably, it's X plus Y equals A plus B. <laughs> but it meant nothing to me. that I do do He took me to the movies for our first date, but miscalculated speed and time. So he was late. Here's a cat in a box, he said, but when I opened it, The cat was dead. He said, hmm, that's interesting. I said, was it dead when you put it in? And the lovely thing about doing Bright Club is that people actually get that joke. It's lovely. That I'm in love with a quantum physicist. I was drawn to him by an invisible force I could not resist. I said, am I attractive? He said, well, everything's relative. It's x brackets d over v, you see <laughs> But it meant nothing to me ba do ba do We're perfectly paired Like e and m c squared We're bound by bits of cosmic string He may be a bit weird Elbow patches and a beard But he's my world, my infinity he hasn't yet proposed but what's worse says we're already married in another universe I said don't you want me look me in the face he said look it's just not working out he said he needed space space but I'm in love with my quantum physicist his knowledge of momentum gave our love life a twist he said here's the situation showed me an equation he said you're my X to the power of three and you mean nothing to me <laughs> he's an X over me <laughs> equals X times misery Why, <laughs> why? Quantum chemistry. (laughs) Thank you.
0: And just in case quantum physics wasn't enough for you, Philip Garsard delves into the life of a Cambridge
4: engineer. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Philip and I'm an engineer. Uh, Well, there seem to be a few of them in tonight. Um, What is engineering? This is a problem I'm often faced with. It's basically science, but useful. Um, and, but I often come across the problem that people don't really know what engineers are. What are they for? Um, and so I, I sort of go back to a general description I heard once, which is that they solve society's problems. That sounds very nice, doesn't it? The thing is, there's not always a decent problem to solve. So I think a more accurate explanation is that an engineer solves society's problems if they exist, But if they don't, they then invent a problem to then solve. Um, So it keeps us in employment at the very least. But I also suffer from the fact that I'm an electronic engineer, which always makes people back off a little bit. Um, I I think the main problem I have is that people understand other areas of engineering. So people do mechanics. They they ride bikes. They fall off bikes. They know how that works. And and people know structures. They live in houses. they walk across bridges, some unlucky people fall off bridges, but they know how they work. With with electronics, you, you can't see anything, and it looks horribly complicated. Well, um, I seem to have survived far enough to actually end up working in it, um, but uh, what do I actually do? I work in a sort of weird subfield, which is known as power electronics, um, which is basically the idea that there's lots of different things that need power. Um, and you need to get it from one place to another, and sometimes, well, it's not a very good idea to plug a battery into the mains, for instance. Um, uh, And so, there's little bits of electronics that go in the middle, uh, and the sort of research I'm doing is trying to improve those, um, and that's a bit like going to the bar. Um, Because if you go to the bar, you want to get a drink, and you want to take it back to your table, and then you want to drink it. That seems fairly obvious. Um, There's a few things you want to achieve along the way. So if you're coming from over there, you want to wend your way through the audience without spilling too much on the carpet. Um, Because if you can do that, you can get drunk more efficiently. (laughs) Secondly, um, depending on how alcoholic you are, you want to try and do that run as many times as you can, as fast as you can, because then you can improve your drinking performance. So those are the two things we're most interested in. Now it turns out that... In, in drinking, as in engineering, we find that we, we do run into some problems. Um, and in fact, if you try and push your drinking performance too hard, you do find performance dropping off in other areas. <laughs> okay, so I work um, in a lab, and I, I, there are a few engineers in here, which kind of uh, doesn't make my link work very well. Um, but I'm guessing that quite a few of you haven't been in an engineering lab, so you may, may not be sure what goes on there. So I thought I'd give you a guided tour. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, OK, so what might you find in an engineering lab? One answer that you, well, one thing that you wouldn't find very much of is engineers. Um, because that's too much like hard work, basically. Uh, because you have to realize that there's two things that engineers really appreciate. One is tea. And the second is telling other engineers why they're wrong. Um, now, fortunately, we're able to combine both of those factors in a thing called a tea break, um, which, if if we at all could, we would make last for the entire day. Now, fortunate, well, fortunately for the university, they're wise to this, um, and so they draw out this obscure form of torture. And the way this works is that they provide us with tea for free and up to 9.30 in the morning, and then again after 4pm. Um, and in the intervening times, well, you, you come in the morning, yeah, you get your tea, nice warm cup of tea, have a good old argue with him over there because he is completely wrong, um, and that warms you up. But then what the hell do you do in the engineering department for however many hours before 4 o'clock? Well, there's only so many kittens on the internet that you can hold your attention, so <laughs> you may as well go to the lab. Uh, and essentially, that's how research gets done in the university. Um, OK, so what else might you find there? Well. There's always some expensive pieces of equipment. Uh, Well, I say expensive, that's all relative. Um, 100 quid, 1,000 quid? Well, I've I've done work in the past with pieces of equipment, which you could buy a house with, Um, in Cambridge, in in the middle of town. Um, It's always quite tempting to run off with, but I I quite quite honestly wouldn't know who to sell it to. (laughs) Um, uh, And so these pieces of equipment exist. Now, there's a few interesting things about this, because the more expensive the equipment, the less useful it is, the fewer people know how to use it, and also it's much easier to break than anything else. (laughs) So this is clearly keeping a few companies in in business, but the reason it's in the department is is, is clearly because if you don't have a piece of very fancy-looking equipment next to your experiment, no, no matter how basic it is, no one is ever going to take you seriously. So, so you have to have that on the desk. Um, and you often have some other test rig or something. It's got blinky lights and no one knows what it is, what it does, or why it's there. But if the lab tour comes around and you're showing off the department, then you always hear them that. OK. So the sort of work I do involves um, trying to come up with predictions of what's going to happen in a particular circuit, and then trying to see if I can actually get it to work. Because unfortunately, real life and computers are not the same thing. Um, <laughs> And it can get a little bit monotonous. So, for example, I might do some typing, uh, have a bit of coffee. Uh, We we do drink coffee as well as tea. Um, (laughs) uh, And then do a little bit of soldering and play with the expensive piece of equipment. It's nothing to do with the experiment, but you need to look like you're doing something useful. Um, And if you let the monotony get to you, then you can run into problems. Uh, So, for instance, trying to drink your soldering iron and pouring coffee on the expensive piece of equipment never ends well. And I'm sorry to say that I have genuinely put a soldering iron to the face. It's really not to be recommended. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, that's what I do day to day. Now, I like to complain about engineering. That's because I'm an engineer. Um, But it seems to get worse with age. And if you talk to an older engineer, then they love to scare the bejesus out of the younger ones. So... Let, let me give you an example. They'll say something like, well, back in 1976, it's always in the 70s, isn't it? Um, that, that back in 1976, we were working on this project, and, and I got a bit of a tingle off that. Uh, now, here I have to explain some terminology, because if someone says something had a bit of a tingle, it means they got an electric shock, which was sufficient to kill or stun most large mammals. Um, LAUGHTER Now, they're an engineer, so they'll they'll brush it off and store it up as a story to tell. But then they'll say, well, Bob, now, I've got to tell you about Bob. He touched his spanner on that contact, and he got a bit of a jolt. Now, that's the next level up. (laughs) What's a jolt? A jolt means Bob was five meters on the other side of the room, lying against the wall. Uh, There was probably a flash and a bang as well. Um, But, of course, Bob lived to tell the tale, and... uh, it's great for scaring the young ones. And let's go to the final level. If, they, if someone says they've singed their eyebrows, <laughs> th- this is akin to someone being near the epicenter of maybe a small thermonuclear explosion. There's not much of the lab left. There's possibly not much of them left either, but somehow they pull through. Uh, and if they live to tell the tale, then they, they will do so as much as possible over the, over the remaining years. Um, even they didn't have it so bad. Um, I thought I'd share with you, uh, well, I I was looking through some stuff the other day, um, as you do, which turned out to be a handbook from 1953 for upcoming electrical engineers, which had some interesting pieces of advice. Uh, I thought I would share some of them with you. Um, So there's a number of points that they give, uh, recommendations of how how to work as an engineer. Um, So they're numbered, and this is number 154. Engineers often test circuits for the presence of voltage by touching the conductors with their fingers. Uh, The method is convenient for locating a blown-out fuse. uh, Bear that in mind. Um, Some men can endure the electric shock that results without discomfort. Uh, Others cannot. Such men are not suitable electrical engineers. (laughs) It continues. Number 155. That was a dangerous stuff. That's high voltage. Uh, The presence of low voltages can be determined by tasting. If voltage is present, a peculiar, mildly burning sensation results, which will never be forgotten after one has experienced it. Now these are clearly terrible pieces of advice, and God knows how anyone actually survived the 1950s. But the thing that worries me is not that they're bad pieces of advice in their own right, but more that Before them, there were 153 other bits of advice that someone has presumably read at some point. Um, Anyway, with any luck, I may survive my career. Uh, At the very least, I appear to have survived Bright Club. So thank you all very much for being a lovely audience, and good night.
0: And I caught up with Philip to find out a little more about his research. What is it exactly that you work on?
4: Okay, I work in a field known as power electronics, and that is concerned with getting power from one form to another, so for example, from the mains to charge a battery or something like that, um, without wasting too much of it along the way. And to do that, I'm looking at a new type of transistor, which can hopefully do this a little bit more efficiently.
0: What exactly is a transistor?
4: Okay, so a transistor is like an automatic switch. Um, so, if you've ever played with a circuit before, you often have a battery and maybe a light bulb and a switch. Um, and if you turn the switch on or off, then you can uh, control the light and the light bulb. You can have it either on or off. And a transistor is like that, but it has the advantage that we can control it with electricity itself. Uh, so it's almost like it's automatic. Um, And that's good because it means we can automate the whole process, but also because we can get it to switch on and off very quickly, which turns out to be useful for the sort of thing I'm working on.
0: So how does the transistor you're working on differ from the usual type?
4: Okay, well, if you think about our circuit again, um, you can add batteries to the circuit and that would make the bulb glow brighter. But it also increases the voltage across the switch when you switch it off. Um, And that's fine, up to a point. But once you get to a certain voltage, if you have too many batteries, then the electricity can jump from one terminal to the other. And then you get a short circuit and the switch is essentially going to blow up. And you get the same problem with the transistor. So the transistors I'm looking at are a little bit more useful for if you want to go to higher voltages, like having more batteries. Um, And so you can have a much bigger stack of them. Uh, So for example, you can go up to 1000 volts instead of maybe 600, um, and that allows us to handle a lot more power. But there's a couple of other advantages too. They work at much higher temperatures, and they also allow us to make circuits which are more efficient. So we don't waste money, and it's also better for the environment.
0: And where are transistors found?
4: Um, Absolutely everywhere. You will own billions of them yourself. Uh, So you get incredibly tiny ones inside your computer, which do all the processing. But I'm not so much interested in those. I'm interested in the ones that control power, and a really good example is in your phone charger. Um, You might have noticed in the past few years, if if you owned an old brick phone, then you would have found that the uh, the charger that came with it was also quite like a brick, it was really heavy and quite big. And in the last few years they've got much much smaller and actually a lot more efficient, and that's because of the the same sort of electronics that I'm doing, but on a a bit of a smaller scale, Um, they're much lighter and uh, they waste a lot less energy.
0: And where will your type of transistor be used?
4: Okay, so I I said I was working at a slightly bigger scale. I'm sort of interested in the power levels that you have in things like electric vehicles. Um, That's a good example. So you need to get the electricity from the battery and use it to drive a motor um, and, and things like that. But there's lots of other applications as well. And people are looking at them to uh, connect their solar panels to the grid. And also for doing clever things with um, putting electronics right at the bottom of oil wells.
0: Why would they do that?
4: Um, Well, it's useful for them to know what's going on down there. um, But it's also really hot. And one of the advantages of the transistors I'm looking at is that they're actually really good in hot conditions. Whereas the ones that most people use, which are made of silicon... Uh, they, they stop working above about 150 degrees. These ones could go on well past 200 degrees, which is really good.
0: So is it the material that you're using for your transistor that's different, or is it the design?
4: It's very much the material, uh, because traditional transistors are made almost entirely out of silicon. We're looking at two different materials for making transistors, which have slightly different benefits, and they're called silicon carbide and gallium nitride. And you you'll be familiar with some of them. So silicon carbide is actually what's used in wet and dry paper, which is what people use in woodworking because it's very hard and very can be made very rough. But it also turns out it's a good semiconductor material.
0: And what about these materials means that they're good for being transistors?
4: Um. Well, it's a slight. It's a slightly strange property of uh, how the electricity flows through them. But you can think about it as being a bit like uh, the electricity having to do a bit of. Uh, A bit of work to get across a a, a gap. So if you imagine um, in the Grand National, some of the fences are quite wide and some of them are quite narrow. Um, And if you make a transistor out of uh, silicon, the the, uh, energy has to make a bit of a jump. It's like going over quite a big fence, a big wide fence in the Grand National. And that uses quite a bit of energy.
0: And that means that until you put a certain amount of energy in, you don't get energy out the other side.
4: Well, it's more that if you put a certain amount of energy in, you waste more of it because once the energy is used to do that jump, then you don't get it back again and it gets wasted as heat. The newer materials tend to have a smaller amount of effort that's needed to get from one side to the other. And so they waste far less energy, um, which is another advantage.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Bright Club Cambridge. Thank you to Helen Scales, Viv Patel, Philip Garsard, and all the performers on the night. I'll leave you now with a couple more songs from Joe Stevenson to play you out. Tune in again soon.
2: So his next song um, was actually banned by Radio 4. So you can imagine how ghastly it is. Um, So this is true. Um, I was asked to write a song um, for a Radio 4 item about pepper grinders, (laughs) as you do. Um, So I wrote this song. And I sent it off to the uh, program, and the producer called me up, and she said, oh, "We really love the song, we love it, but we're a bit concerned, because this is, uh, this is what she said, because it has an orgasm trajectory." <laughs> I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, to me, it was just a lovely song about pepper grinders. Um, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do um, the uh, original uncensored. Uh, Version for you uh, tonight. See if you can spot the orgasm trajectory. I can't even say it. (laughs) I was. Lost, I was lonely, I fancied cannelloni I went into a restaurant, my waiter's name was Tony He barely put my plate down When he pulled something enormous from under his apron I was shocked, I felt sick, nearly choked on my breadstick Never in my life have I seen one quite so drastic It made me feel quite ill The size of his three-foot pepper mill He leaned over me and with a leer Said, would you like some black pepper, my dear? have died with embarrassment. It felt like sexual harassment with a condiment. I said no, he wouldn't go. He was putting on a show. He was stroking his pepper My cheeks began to glow, so I reached for the key tea. But that was his cue to up the ante. I was drowning in sleaze and parmesan cheese. He was so heavy on the pepper, it was making me sneeze. I protested he went faster and sprayed peppercorn all over my pasta How can I enjoy my bolognese when you're grinding away in my face? It's enough to put me off my lasagna, and it doesn't make you more of a man, yeah It should be banned, yeah I was cross it wasn't planned but I had to take a stand Grab the giant grinder, of his sweaty hand I said, I know you love it But I can think of somewhere I'd like to shove it He said, what do you mean? Don't be angry, senorina I explained I'd never witnessed a display that was obscene I put your meal back on the shelf I prefer to do my seasoning myself I prefer to do my seasoning myself Thank you I'm just going to do one more more very um, quick uh, song before I go away. Um, This is a very, very, very angry song. It's about something that makes me very, 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 very cross. Um, It's a a bit of a protest song, it's a campaign song, and it's actually very new um, because I wrote it on the train on the way here after an incident at King's Cross Station. Um, So I'm actually feeling quite angry and worked up just thinking about singing this song. (laughs) Okay, we'll see how it goes. the underground on the escalator, got a meeting and I'm running later. If there's one thing that I hate, your bag on wheels is in my way sir. I hate you, I hate you though I don't know you, cause you're walking way too slow sir. Dragging your handbag as you go sir. Trip me up and I fall over. Wheeled suitcases, wheeled suitcases should be banned from public places. Wheeled suitcases, wheeled suitcases should be banned from public places. I don't know if I can carry on, I'm just, it's really angry. Makes me wonder what went wrong, I didn't have them when I was younger Maybe them people were stronger, or their arms were longer <sighs> Try to keep my cool, not let it faze me, but you're a fool and you just amaze me Are you weak or just too lazy, driving your bag like you're driving Miss Daisy? Why are you trying to make me sprain my ankle? Your wheel's getting caught in my sandal Smashing my leg like a fucking vandal Can't you carry it by the handle? Wheel suitcases, wheel suitcases Should be banned from public places Wheel suitcases, wheel suitcases Should be banned, should be banned, should be banned, should be banned, should be banned From public places